Hi everybody, this is Pat Ryan and welcome back to Childhood History and Critique. And this time I have a conversation with James Martin, the editor of the Journal of the History of Childhood and Youth and the President of the Society. Jim has been faculty in the Department of History at Marquette University for several decades. He has served uh, collectively about 10 years as chair of the Department of History there and was many, many years the treasurer of the Society for the History of Children and Youth. Our conversation is about 40 minutes. It's been broken into two parts. The first part starts with a little bit about Jim's background, how he became a historian of childhood, and we try to relate that to some common themes in the development of the field. And then we move into a discussion of the approaches of the decisions that he is making as editor of the journal and that straddles both the end of part one and the beginning of part two which moves into a discussion of the society and what he sees as some of our challenges on the horizon I hope that you'll like this conversation or enjoy it as uh, as much as I did take care well, Jim, thank you for uh, joining Childhood History and Critique. I'd like to start, you know, with uh, you. Could you um, tell us a little bit about your intellectual interests and your academic background? How did you find yourself as a historian of childhood and youth? Well, I think it found me in a certain sense. I was a civil, well, I am a Civil War historian. Mm -hmm. And my first uh, book was about Texas during the Civil War era. My dissertation was published. I got tenure. And I was looking for another project. And uh, I didn't really have one at hand. I had a vague notion of writing a social history of Sherman's March, uh, yeah. which a lot of people ended up doing about that time. This is in the late, early 90s, early 90s, I guess I was trying to figure this out. And I came across two books uh, by guys who aren't involved with the society or with children's history anymore, Elliot West and David Nassau. Elliot West wrote yes. a book called Growing Up with the Country, yep. um, and David Nassau wrote Children of the City. And I don't recall why I came across them, but I assigned them to the survey class I was teaching. And it was a, a class made up entirely of elementary ed majors, so it was sort of an unusual class. Mm -hmm. And they did a comparative paper about these two books, and they really liked them, and I really liked them. And I thought, well, you know, this is unusual and interesting to me, and so I'll have a chapter about them in my book about Sherman's March. Well, one thing led to another, and um, I wrote a whole book about children during the Civil War. And so it's a very happenstance sort of thing. I think a lot of people who come to children uh, children's history come in this way. They're doing one project or one chapter of a project, uh, a certain source or a certain event uh, strikes them as being interesting, and uh, and and they do something. Uh, I've stayed in it, however, uh, yeah. unlike uh, many others. Well, and that that makes complete sense to me. I mean, one one way that I understand your personal story, to put it in broader terms, and I'd like your your response to this, is that one of the things that has defined social history really since the late 1950s. I think it's part, if I were just thinking about American historiography, I would go back to the middle of the 1950s as an attempt to expand the boundaries of what counts as history and who is included 
and to search for another point of view or elements of the past that uh, that are well known, but there are sources that are ignored or overlooked or stories that aren't as central to the existing narrative. And then if you take what you understand, let's say Sherman's March, the Civil War, and you say, well, what are children doing? If you add that on to the existing set of questions, you get um, new ground. To... Oh, absolutely. I think children's history is sort of the second generation of that 50s, 60s search for uh, unrepresented historical actors. Uh, and it comes directly out of women's history, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, educational history, which is a different thing entirely, but I think that's actually one of the places that children's history originated, institutional histories of childhood at least. For me, um, and I think this is what you mentioned, sources and and either looking at older sources anew or finding new sources, children's literature had often been the subject of research, certainly, and I use a lot of that in my book, but not as literary things, but as reflections mm-hmm. of children's experiences and what was expected of children. I also use lots of letters of soldiers to their families. One of the yep. things that a war does is it uh, requires families to communicate in ways they wouldn't communicate otherwise. The United States was a very literate place by the 1860s, and uh, the war gives us a chance to see real people talking about their lives in ways that they wouldn't have otherwise. And yeah. so there's a lot of lot lot in in the book about relationships uh, between fathers and children and mothers and fathers and uh, and so forth uh, because of what the fathers are writing and what they want to hear about too. There's lots of letters from mothers to to soldiers, uh, and of course the first news that soldiers want is what what are the kids doing? And these are parts of letters that I, mean, I didn't dig deep these letters. I mean, there are tens of thousands of these collections around. Uh, uh-huh. published and unpublished. I did a little bit of archival research, but they're mainly published. And so they've been gone over a lot, uh, but that part of them had not been used. And so it was fun to be doing something, and meaningful, personally meaningful, as well as just fun, to be doing something uh, that had not been done before and to look at a well-worn topic like the Civil War mm-hmm. uh, with, uh, with a new perspective. So much there, but I'm thinking of of uh, on the side, your comment about education, you think about uh, in the history of education, a historian who was not a historian of, of education per se, but Bernard Balin, but wrote in, I think the lectures are in 59, the publications probably 60, um, Education and the Formation of American Society. It's a very small book. But a line that really grabbed me early when I was a graduate student made me think about you know, what the relationship between childhood and history, a line in that book is that education, he was trying to define what education was. Education is the transmission of culture through the generations, through time. And you know one of the classic definitions of history, what is history? History is the study of continuity and change through time. And so that sort of placed education at the center of what historians ought to be interested in, and it's a pretty small leap from that definition of what history should be and what education is, seeing them in that way related to seeing that childhood is central to the transmission of culture over time and therefore central to history. And so 
And that's well, that Balin wrote about a time period that is very fruitful with these things, too. Um, yes. What's the name of Joseph Kett's book about youth in the New, New Republic? Rites of, Rites of Passage. Right. I mean, Kett's not a childhood historian. No. By any means. But because he was writing about a period in which Americans had started to think about childhood, and youth more specifically, and turn them into Americans uh, during adolescence, uh, it becomes this classic book in a field that Kett had never heard of, never belonged uh-huh. to in his own mind. Uh, and uh, and Balin is a lot like that. They're, I guess Kett's a little bit later than he is, but uh, similar periods, similar approaches. Well, that's what's great about ideas is that I think when I think, and I could be, this is my own perspective on it, when I think about what Balin is trying to do throughout the 60s, and, and he comes out with this a little more explicitly after uh, the lectures that became Education, the Formation of American Society, but he seems to me, if you were to identify him, this is a guy who made an argument that ideas were still important in Ameri- in history, that you couldn't just do a sociological history, that ideas still mattered. You know, you think about the ideological origins of the American Revolution. Uh, and so th- that, in sense, that's something that's very important at the time when econometric history is becoming very important in the late 1960s. But all along, when you're doing work and writing, you know, what are uh, powerful books, they're going to they're going to have implications for others decades later that may be completely detached from your own intentions. Well, I think uh, Balin you know, started the well, he started it, but was certainly one of the representative members of the whole generation doing republicanism, you know, yes. as, as, a, as, a, as a thought that really hit when I was in grad school. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the early 80s, and uh, my favorite class in grad school is really about that with Drew McCoy. We read great books, yeah. and it's been a very, very important part of my nostalgia for grad school. I don't have a lot of nostalgia for grad school. That's one one thing I have nostalgia for. In the New England Town Studies, just to just veer off a different direction, old-fashioned, well, old-fashioned us now, but uh, reflecting this new interest in uh, common folk and looking at sources in different ways and communities in different ways. Uh, and, and there's a, there's a thread of children's history that comes out of that, of course, to John Demas. It's, it's fascinating stuff. Um, you, you took on the position of, of editor. How is the journal, uh, doing and, and what have you, you know, learned in this position and what, what opportunities and challenges has it presented? I think it's doing fine. I guess I'll have to ask somebody else how it's doing right now. <laughs> the, the first issue was really the previous editor's articles in a way. The second issue was kind of a mix. And then this third issue that really just came out a few weeks ago um, mm-hmm. was pretty much mine. Uh, if you measure the health of the journal in terms of submissions, of good submissions, I think we're doing great. Uh, we have the entire next volume filled uh Two of them are special issues from the Nottingham, of papers from the Nottingham conference, in fact. Uh, and that's pretty exciting. And then we have kind of a catch-all issue in the middle that will eliminate the queue, hopefully, that we've got built up. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think its submissions have been very steady. They've been, I don't think they've been a lot different than earlier submissions. Um, 
one of the problems with the journal, and we talked about it a lot in Nottingham uh, at a, a session we had about the journal and just also in individual conversations, it's, uh, it's been heavily 19th and 20th century, heavily British, Canadian, American, uh, and that hasn't changed a lot. We've gotten a few submissions from other continents. Earlier periods still aren't coming in. I think it reflects the field, for one thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think I'm, I'm hesitant to call it a challenge, I guess, because I'm not sure it's it's either good nor bad. It just sort of is. Um, we publish what we get. Uh, I do recruit up to a point. We'll be looking very closely at sessions in, in Vancouver in June, of course. Um, I'm kind of excited about uh, the possibility of a special issue in Irish childhood. Yes. Uh, that's in the works. Well, it'll go through for sure. I'm not going to guarantee that, but I, I'm pretty sure it will. And that'll be a very new thing. Uh, I'm also looking for ways, just because we get enough regular submissions of good articles, that I don't want to privilege special issues too much. But think more about roundtables. Uh, having five or six people write like really short articles, basically, uh, into one super article of maybe... 12,000 words instead of the 8,000 words we allow about a certain topic. And there's a couple of those that are in the works, too. So the short answer is I think we're doing fine. Um, we have too many books we should be reviewing. That's that's, that's a challenge, uh, is working in enough book reviews, I think, because there are more books than we can review. Sometime during the next issue, we will start publishing a few reviews of uh, books published in non-English languages. Uh, I've been working on that. So, I mean, I think it's going fine. Um, I have been extremely gratified with how relatively easy it's been, or at least surprisingly easy to me, it's been to get people to review both articles and books. I rarely get turned down. They do it on time, almost universally. Um, a confirmation for me of, the uh, vitality and the collegiality uh, of the field and of the people in that field. You know, obviously one of the goals of the society and the journal is to be international and interdisciplinary and to kind of push boundaries. But the earlier periods thing is, but it's almost like a critical mass has to get started before the recognition sets in in the community of scholars, let's say, in terms of early modern historians or or medieval historians or those doing historical philosophy, studying the ancients. And and until and, and there are parallel organizations, I know of them in Britain that have, uh, you know, scholars from uh, before the 19th century that are working on childhood. But the question is, how do you connect those groups and and so I think that's just an ongoing, you know, challenge. I don't know that it really has a solution. You just have to keep keep working. I think that's the case with that and still other issues that face any uh, organization. I think one of the things that I've made some decisions in terms of book reviews and articles up to a point, I'm raising the bar for the historical sensibility mm-hmm. of articles that we publish and books that we review. Um, this this comes out, and, and this is more of a prioritization than a rejection of anything. Um, I have just recently decided not to have reviewed a few books that are straight 
children's literature books. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we're not going to not do those at all, you know, but to, to do them, they need to be a reflection of some sort of historical question. And that's a very subtle shift. I don't think it's going to make a huge difference, but it, it will help, I think, make it a little clearer as uh, to the path forward and make some more room. It's entirely the only reason I'm doing it is to make room, you know, in the journal. Yeah. And I think those are, those are always, uh, uh, those are subtle decisions. They're difficult decisions, but as someone in, in my own, you know, personal history, I've had to deal a lot with interdisciplinarity and it's a buzzword and everybody says that speaks of it in a positive way. It's supposed to be a strength if you're interdisciplinary. But part of the problem is another value that we have, a core value in being academic, academics is to try to create a a community of, of intellectual exchange. And in order to have exchange, you do need some common ground. And there are times, and I've worked really hard at this, so I feel like I've I feel like I've earned the right to say this. I spent a lot of years working with sociologists or political scientists and philosophers, less or so literary critics, but I've actually done a lot of work uh, in literary criticism. And I'm telling you, sometimes it's like ships passing in the night. You think you're speaking the same language and you're talking past each other. And that that's a byproduct of interdisciplinarity. And it doesn't mean you abandon the project, but I think it's also important to be honest about, hey, is there coherence here? Are we, do we have some common terms to talk about? I don't know what your thoughts about are about that, but it well, is I an issue. Entirely, I mean, my, my, you know, purpose in the journal is, is to promote the history of children and youth. Mm-hmm. And there are many ways of doing that, and you don't have to be a traditional historian. And I'm a fairly traditional historian. I do the most work I've done outside of history sources is in literature, but I don't do literary criticism. I do. I think they call it a close reading, you mm-hmm. know, of literature, um, and and to pull things out that I think really help us understand the period of people or whatever. Um, but there's also a methodology issue there. From a journal standpoint, there's citations. The mm-hmm. citation process is different, and that's just a, that's a little editing thing, but it is a is symbolic of this, as you said, ships passing in the night. We do things very differently, uh, and it's um, something that you know we'll we'll always have a meeting about the journal at the conference, and we'll always talk about these things. And the editorial board and I have had you know conversations about this via email, uh, mm-hmm. and I sort of announced this. Prioritization, which I don't think surprised anybody. It's not like it was a really huge shift. I don't want to make it sound like there's a big policy shift here. It's probably going to make a difference in two or three articles a year not getting published at most. Uh, but, uh, but it is something that, uh, from my standpoint as an editor, is a purely practical thing. But as a scholar and as somebody who's been involved with the society from the beginning, um, it, it is, it's almost a, it's a philosophical issue as well. That, as you said, there's not a solution. There's, there's nothing wrong with it. There's no solution because there's no problem, really. Yeah. It is something we have to address all the time. This is the conclusion of part one of a conversation between James Martin and Pat Ryan, recorded in December of 2014. 
the second part of the conversation can be found on the Society for the History of Childhood and Youth website under the archive entitled Childhood History and Critique.